The following message by Alistair Begg is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. What I, what I want to do is um, uh, read um, part of the story of Ruth in a moment or two. But before, but before I get to that, as just talking about Chattanooga and so on, as we move around the world, it's not uncommon to hear just bystanders say, is there anybody in charge around here? You know, whatever it might be, in, in business or in education or in, air, in airports, in the grocery store, is, anybody, is anyone in charge around here? And the feeling, the prevailing feeling, that somehow or another the world seems just to spin. And unless there is some place we can go, some answer we can find, then the journey through life is, uh, is a perilous journey. And if we don't have a foundation for navigating that journey, then we're all in need of one. And I think there is an openness on the part of uh, men and women to consider the claims of anybody who can offer the suggestion that we're not living in a random universe. And of course, that is the testimony of the Christian. And uh, if we've been involved in church for any length of time, uh, we've learned at least a few verses, and uh, we know that uh, Romans uh, 8.28 declares the fact that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. In other words, that God, who created the universe, is providentially sustaining the universe and is working everything, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, according to the counsel of his will. The big word for that, of course, the theological word for that, is the word providence, which really finds its genesis in Genesis 22, where you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac— And Isaac says to Abraham, well, we seem to have everything here, but we don't have a lamb for the sacrifice. And the answer that Abraham gives to his son is, God will provide a lamb, that we can trust uh, the providence of God. And that, of course, extends not just to the huge big pieces of the movements of the world— but it actually extends, the Bible says, to the intricate details of our lives, and that God is immediately and consistently involved in the ebb and flow of all that comes our way, which, of course, is a relatively easy doctrine to handle when the things that are coming our way seem to be uh, very pleasant, seem to go in line with our hopes and with our dreams, seem to fulfill the uh, longings of our hearts. And then suddenly one day, uh, that doesn't actually fit anymore. Suddenly one day there is a diagnosis. One day there is one of those routine blood tests that turn out not to be routine. And it is on that day, as we have faced it, that each of us then have to determine whether we actually believe in this God 
who is working even the details of our lives out according to his purposes. And it is an unusual thing if, in an event like that, we do not, at least at some point, ask the question, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Not just why is anything happening, but why is this happening? And in the vast majority of cases, the answer to that question has got very little to do with the this, because God is working in a variety of circumstances of which the this may only be a very small part. Furthermore, that God is always working in a variety of lives, so that when we add to the why is this happening, we add to me, why is this happening to me? Again, the answer to that may actually have very little to do with the me and have a tremendous amount to do with the lives of other people. Now, that's not simply the case in relationship to the concerns of physical illness, uh, cancer in specific, as we're here this evening, but it is true also. Um, Sue and I are dealing with a lady who's in jail at the moment. And when we first encountered this lady, her question was exactly that question. Why is this happening to me? Why would God allow this to happen to me? Two and a half years later, she now finds herself in jail. She has resolved that question by the grace of God. She has come to an understanding of the goodness of God, and she is now testifying to the impact that the grace of God is having on the relatives in her family who, when she first was sentenced, were asking the very same question. But you see, what God is doing in her mom's life and in her aunt's life is directly related to what has happened in her life. So, God is at work in a variety of lives. He's at work in a variety of ways. He's at work in a variety of circumstances. And, of course, uh, the classic uh, illustration of that when you start your Bible is the story of Joseph. Uh, You know that Joseph's dad doted on him. He bought him a special coat. Joseph had uh, various dreams in the evening, and he liked to get up at breakfast time and tell his brothers, especially the ones where they had to bow down before him, And as a result of that, he is stripped naked and sold into slavery with every reason to ask the question, why is this happening to me? Uh, The enslavement on the part of his brothers was due to their own animosity. The purchase that was made by the slave traders was due to their entrepreneurial skill. The context in which he found himself was directly related to the ebb and flow and movements of the various pieces involved in the puzzle. But when it finally comes to the end of the story, when you get to the end in chapter 45 and then on to 50, and he reveals himself to his brothers, he says the most unbelievable thing. You will perhaps recall it. He says to them, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life that God knew, not interfering in any way, 
but sweeping into the eternal counsel of his will, a plan that it would involve the famine-stricken family of Jacob in being restored. What a strange and wonderful way to do that. Now you're saying to yourself, well, I thought we're getting to the end of the talk, and you haven't even started it because you wanted to do Ruth. Well, you can just put your hand up at any point, and I will stop. That will be fine. It's okay. I I will be glad to do so, and it won't be the first time uh, that people have been putting their hands up. But um, I decided I wanted to do Ruth. Don't you love stories? I mean, incidentally, when we say something is a story, this doesn't mean it's a fairy tale. It means it's an unfolding story. It's a, it's a great story. And arguably, the four chapters of Ruth are one of the finest short stories that exists in all of literature. And I want to read just chapter one. I'm going to make a few comments. And then, as uh, Ed Tate Parker used to say, just thought of him just now because I thought of Tennessee, at our elders' meeting, he used to say, I'm going to say my piece, and then I'm going to hush. So that's, that's the plan from this point on, okay? I'm going to read it in the message. Uh, for those of you who are offended by that, get over it. <laughs> Once upon a time, it was back in the days when judges led Israel, there was a famine in the land. A man from Bethlehem in Judah left home to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. His sons were named Malon and Kilion, all Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They all went to the country of Moab and settled there. Elimelech died, and Naomi was left, she and her two sons. The sons took Moabite wives. The name of the first was Orpah, the second Ruth. They lived there in Moab for the next ten years. But then the two brothers, Malon and Kilian, died. Now the woman was left without either her young men or her husband. One day she got herself together, she and her two daughters-in-law, to leave the country of Moab and set out for home. She'd heard that God had been pleased to visit his people and give them food. And so she started out from the place she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law with her, on the road back to the land of Judah. After a short while on the road, Naomi told her two daughters-in-law, Go back, go home, and live with your mothers. And may God treat you as graciously as you treated your deceased husbands and me. May God give each of you a new home and a new husband. She kissed them, and they cried openly. They said, No, we're going on with you to your people. But Naomi was firm. Go back, my dear daughters. Why would you come with me? Do you suppose I still have sons in my womb who can become your future husbands? Go back, dear daughters, on your way, please. I'm too old to get a husband. Why, even if I said there's still hope, and this very night got a man and had sons, can you imagine being satisfied to wait until they were grown? Would you wait that long to get married again? No, dear daughters, this is a bitter pill for me to swallow, more bitter for me than for you. God 
has dealt me a hard blow. Again, they cried openly. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth embraced her and held on. Naomi said, Look, your sister-in-law is going back home to live with her own people and gods. Go with her. But Ruth said, Don't force me to leave you. Don't make me go home. Where you go, I go. And where you live, I'll live. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'll die. And that's where I'll be buried. So help me, God. Not even death itself is going to come between us. When Naomi saw that Ruth had her heart set on going with her, she gave in. And so the two of them traveled on together to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was soon buzzing. Is this really our Naomi? And after all this time? But she said, Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. The strong one has dealt me a bitter blow. I left here full of life, and God has brought me back with nothing but the clothes on my back. Why would you call me Naomi? God certainly doesn't. The strong one ruined me. And so Naomi was back, and Ruth the foreigner with her, back from the country of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, if you've never read Ruth, this is your homework assignment. And that is to—I'm going to finish it for you. You'll be glad, perhaps, to know. But it will, uh, it will repay your study. And I hope we'll fill in um, any almost inevitable blanks that are left in, in the comments uh, that I have to make. What this um, does, in part, is reveal the fact of what has happened to Naomi or what happens to uh, Naomi in her triple bereavement. She is bereaved three times over. And what we discover, and I don't like to finish the story for you if you don't know it, but in the slow unfolding of the providence of God, it leads to the conversion of Ruth, to Ruth's marriage to Boaz, to motherhood, to the coming of David, Israel's king, and to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that coming out of a circumstance where Naomi would have every reason to ask, why has this happened to me? The first five verses uh, just actually describe, if you like, a life that is falling apart. The events of life are caving in on her. Now, Bethlehem was the land of bread. That's what its name meant. But there was no bread. There was famine. Her husband, Elimelech, takes the initiative and decides, well, then we'd be better going somewhere than starving here. And so it's in that context that they they leave. Bethlehem, the house of bread, not living up to its name. And what we're going to discover is that this lady was a lady of faith. And her faith is exemplified even in this trauma. Uh, Naomi, her name actually means lovely or pleasant or delightful. 
And so her name is actually challenged by the circumstances that she faces, the experiences. She's, she's called Miss Lovely, Miss uh, Delightful, Miss uh, Pleasant. And the experiences into which she comes are ugly, painful, and depressing. So the challenge is there. Every time she looks in the mirror, I'm Miss Pleasant, but why is life so horribly unpleasant? She left with her two sons after she's left with her two sons after her husband dies, and then she's left without her two sons and without her husband. Now, if, if, you, if you're like me, then you, tr- you try and conjure these pictures up in your mind. You squeeze your eyes together, and, and, and you imagine her standing now at the doorway in her um, adopted homeland for the time being. She looks out of the door. She looks down the street. There's no familiar face. Certainly not the face of her boys. Certainly not her husband's face. The three men in her life that meant everything to her have been taken away, and she knows why, and she knows how, because God in his providence did this. This was not like 7-1 to the devil, and God had uh, taken a vacation— No, she understood exactly what was going on. It is important, I think, also to recognize that her faith, although it's pushed, tried, tested, stretched to the limits, the limits of, if you like, emotional endurance, it's still faith. It's not unbelief. This is important. Faith is still faith when we trust God. It's not unbelief in her part. She recognizes. If you read the story, as I'm sure you're now going to, you realize that she references the Lord all the time. The Lord has done this, she says. This is the Lord's doing. And it is not marvelous in my eyes. This is the Lord's doing, and it is difficult to handle. It's, it's, it's straightforward. She doesn't doubt that Yahweh is still in control, despite the pain of her experience. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this is wonderfully helpful. I think that when I find people who are honest about things like this, it has a, it has a ring of uh, reality to it that is, that is both demanding and at the same time assuring. I'm not one for the triumphalistic statements— I'm not one for the, well, it doesn't really matter at all, because after all, well, fine, perhaps you live in a realm of spiritual geography that I have never experienced. That's just not something that has an immediate appeal to me. But I do recognize when someone's heart cry is staggered by the incident, and yet at the same time is an expression of faith. Um, I I thought of uh, this lady uh, when I was— working on this talk, Fiona Castle came here years and years ago. She spoke to ladies in the church. Fiona Castle's husband was, uh, was a well-known singer and entertainer in Britain. He died of cancer himself. And in the aftermath, uh, she wrote a little book called Rainbows Through the Rain, which is actually a collation of different or compilation of various bits and pieces. And in one of them, one of the pieces, there is a poem by another cancer lady, Shirley Vickers. And her, her uh, poem is called Black Hole. 
a prayer for those going through dark places. Now, the reason I read this is because I want to suggest that uh, Naomi, while her faith is faith, she's faithful in her faith, I think she might have been happy to add her amen to these sentiments. It goes like this. Oh, God, I'm right back in that limbo world again. Can't feel you close to me. Can't feel anything. It seemed as if things were fine walking in the light. Then suddenly panic. It's all dark. I'm drowning. Worries no more than there were before. And yet they're now so heavy, so unsolvable, so endless, sucking me down. And I'm listening to the enemy who is condemning me to death with his sly lies. Doctors tell us that feeling low is just like any other illness— brought on by stress, hormones, exhaustion, debility, then why do I feel so guilty about it, so powerless to drag myself out, so unguarded? Where is my knowledge of you being there, right beside me, part of me, while my feelings scream that because I am like this, I have failed you? Therefore, I am less than nothing, useless rubbish. Please give me the disciplined mind to refuse to entertain these trespassing thoughts which have no right to be there, because I am your child, to wait quietly in faith until my receiving equipment is repaired and switched on again. And I could feel you filling me with your big heart, forgiving, empowering, and remobilizing me where you have been all the time. So, there we have it. Her faith, while still faith, fascinatingly, somehow or another, didn't quite cover the little bits and pieces of God's provision for her. What I mean by that is that her faith was blind, actually, to the fact that God was providentially at work in her life. In other words, she had faith enough to believe that God is sovereign, that he overrules all things, that he understands what he's doing with his people, that he will bring them back to the place of his purposes. That's all well and good. But what about for Naomi? What about for her? She was very aware of the fact that God was able to provide, but what about a special provision for her? At some point, as we read on the road, far enough away to not be tempted to go back to Moab, and uh, close enough to be able to say to her daughter-in-law, I think you should go back. Uh, That's uh, some point along the journey where this conversation takes place. And she urges them in a way that is wonderfully selfless, isn't it? Uh, The pain is a real pain, And yet, she is not preoccupied with that. She recognizes that these girls have a future that is beyond her. The strange statement she makes about having babies and waiting and so on. Of course, there was no way that was going to happen. And so she says, you go back, go home, go go to where you are in a place of familiarity. Don't worry about me anymore, because after all, the best of my life is now over. Um, she has in mind their well-being, their security, which, ironically, is exactly 
the perspective of God in relationship to her. There's a very God-like response on her part. I'm concerned about you, and I'm concerned about your well-being, and I'm concerned about your future. If she could only hear herself speaking, she would hear the voice of God saying to her, and Naomi, that's exactly why I'm concerned about you. You're worried about them. That's fine. Now, I think we need to think this out. The, the way in which when we face these things, as inevitably we will do, we can actually miss uh, what God is doing. The daughter-in-law that she urges to leave, who doesn't leave, is going to prove to be the very embodiment of God's fellowship and faithfulness. She thinks it's a great idea to send them back. Mercifully, only one of them goes. Well, was that because God made Ruth do that? That she was a pawn on a gigantic chessboard? That she did not have the right to make a decision? No, she made her own decision. They both made their own decision. Freely. I'm going back. I'm staying. And in the providence of God, one of the two that Naomi thought she'd also be gone was the means that God had provided for her. And there was no advantage uh, to Ruth in doing what she did. It wasn't—it's not as if somehow or another it would enhance her circumstances. Not at all. There was no social or financial or even religious reason as to why she should do what she did. So what happens, of course, is that her faith— then is able to find hope in the signs of God's providence. And that's what the balance of the story really includes. Uh, The first chapter, which we just read, ends with the sun uh, shining on the fields of the barley harvest. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. It makes me think of Sting. Among the fields of barley. Fields of barley and fields of grain. Um, Little details like this are fantastic, aren't they? Aren't they? This is is not an invention. The way in which the the Bible is written, incidentally, is, is, is... according to the author and according to the genre and according to the context. So if Ruth—when we read Ruth, it sounded like we were reading Ephesians, we'd know something is seriously up here. Because when God wanted Ephesians wrote, he had a guy called Paul who would be capable of writing Ephesians. When he wanted this one wrote, written, uh, he, he was glad to have Naomi. But you will notice— Uh, She comes back into town. They arrive in Bethlehem. The whole town is stirred. You can imagine it. Oh, goodness, did you see her? I think I saw her at the market. I think I saw Naomi there. Oh, no, no, Naomi left a long time ago. No, I think she's back. You better check and see. And she's got a girl with her. I think she's foreign. I think she's—I don't think she's—you know, I think she's a different—she's a different girl. Really, the whole town is stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Can this be Miss Pleasant? Can this be Miss Delightful? 
Well, she says, well, I don't want you to call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me Mara. Call me Miss Bitter. Now notice, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. She doesn't transmute the bitterness into a good because of its source. God, a sovereign God, looking down upon his children, acting according to his benevolent will, has done what he's done. And she says, we might as well face the facts. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. I like this as well, because she's not kidding herself, and she's not trying to kid anybody else. There's no hiding of her feelings. There's no pretending. There's no saying to herself, you know, when I get back into town, I should put on a really good show, because after all, the people from the church, they're going to expect me to be, you know, whatever. No, 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 no. She says, no, here's the deal. I don't think you should call me this. I think it'd be better to call me Mara. There's no stiff upper lip from her. All the things that, if you're not careful, you might find creating a huge guilt trip for you when you lie in your bed at night and cry because you're sad or because you feel empty and because you know that this is as it is. That's the benefit, you see, of the clarity and the sweetness of the Word of God. Faith may not always see in the simple things the evidences of God's providence. I studied at home this morning purposefully um, and because there was nobody there and it was nice and quiet. And I, I opened the window um, to get fresh air, but also to hear the birds sing. I thought that would be quite nice. And of course, it was very nice. Consider the birds of the air. They don't store stuff away in a retirement account. God looks after them. If you see the grass, it's been clothed once again. And God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the oven. Let's not miss the evidences of God's goodness to us. Food on the table, companionship. She could say, well, he's not my husband, but she's such a nice girl, and I'm glad that she's with me. And then the rest of the story is, of course, just that fantastic story. And uh, I don't want to spoil it for you if you've never read it, because I hate it when people tell me the end of a thing. I've never understood people reading the end of a novel uh, before they do the beginning. Uh, They're certainly not Scottish, because that's a dreadful waste of money. You might as well just go in the bookstore and read it by yourself, and then put it back up now that you know how it finished. Well, her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. Oh, the Lord bless him. 
Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, He hasn't stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Boaz was like God to her. And when you read on in the story, this Boaz thing gets really quite, quite compelling. And I think the last thing I want to say is this, because I've gone on too long, but her faith, Naomi's faith, could never actually guess what God would accomplish through these trials. Because I think when we think in terms of the providence of God, most of the time we—well, I, I, I seldom get it looking forward. I sometimes get it looking through the rearview mirror. You know, because looking forward, it seems only daunting or whatever it might be. And um, we, we can't necessarily put the pieces of the puzzle together. And, and Naomi uh, could never have guessed what this was going to uh, result in. Chapter 4, and uh, again, I don't want to spoil it for you, but so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. That's exciting. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life, sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. And the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. God's plan was much bigger than anything that she could ever have conceived. And we have to acknowledge, too, that it's the very ordinariness of this story that is so appealing, isn't it? That in the ordinariness of the lives of ordinary people, God is, is working his purpose out. Jesus' life, Jesus' life in terms of physical descent— was linked to the story of a Moabite girl gleaning in barley fields miles from her home, looking after her mother-in-law, in whose sadness and in whose bereavement God had been at work. So that when we get to the beginning of the Gospels— and hopefully the next time that we uh, broach this, we, we say to ourselves, whoa, I get that. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abram was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and all the way down. And Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, for crying out loud. Jesus came to save the kind of people who were in his family tree. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife and all the way down. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Why is this happening to me? 
Naomi said, it's not really about you, Naomi. It's about something that extends way back in time and all the way on into eternity. When all the changing scenes of life, in sorrow and in joy, through all those changing scenes of life, in sorrow and in joy, the praises of my heart shall still um, declare your glory. And two closing comments, or just an observation, would be this before Jim comes and cleans everything up. Um, I don't think there can be any doubt that we will be far more effective in speaking to our friends and neighbors when we are prepared to be honest about our pain, honest about our disappointments, honest about our sufferings, and the fact that that tested faith is still faith. You know, I think it's John Murray who says, if we have faith as slender as one strand of a spider's web, there is the evidence of redeeming love. And I don't know all of you who are here tonight, and I don't know what you make of all that I've just said, but I do want to commend to you first the reading of Ruth, and then the understanding that the end of the line for Ruth's story and for all of our stories comes in an encounter with the Lord Jesus, who, despite the fact that we try and muscle our way through life on our own, he loves us and he pursues us, even when we don't expect it. I had a wonderful illustration of this that just comes to mind, and, 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 and with this I will close. A fellow sent me a text during the week last week when I was traveling, and he said, I, I'd like to talk to you uh, sometime. It's not about cars. The reason he said it wasn't about cars was because he's a car salesman. And I had only ever had a conversation with him in passing about, well, what about that or what about that? We had no, no relationship at all. We had a mutual friend. So I called him back. He said, call me. So I called him. And he said, hello. I said, hello. I said, what's up? He said, well, let me begin by saying, you know, I'm not a religious man, Alistair. I said, okay. Uh, he, he said, yeah, because I, I'm, not, I'm not at all religious. I said, okay, fine. You know, you want to call, you call me up to tell me you're not religious. I don't know. That's all right. That's fine. Okay. I said, so what's going on? He said, well, I'm, I'm at an event at the Ritz-Carlton in Washington, D.C. It's a big car event. I was sitting at the bar with my wife having a conversation slash an evolving argument. My wife left, and I was sitting by myself. For whatever reason, he said, and you know I'm not a religious man. He kept saying this. You know I'm not a religious man. I started to Google. I took my phone, and I, and I Googled God, and I Googled faith, and I found myself sitting with the Ten Commandments in front of me. Okay? And he says, as I'm sitting looking at this, somebody comes and sits down right beside me. A big tall guy, he said. And the gentleman said to him, hello, hello, where are you from? The guy says, from Cleveland. The gentleman says, I have a friend in Cleveland. And he says, but I don't think you'll know who he is. He's a pastor. His name is Alistair Beck. Oh, said this guy. Yeah, I know him. I do know him. I don't know him well, but I know him. Well, guess who God had sit down next to this guy? Oz Guinness. 
for goodness sake. One of the great social evangelists of our generation. And he sits him down. Of course, he didn't, you know, move him, say, Oz, you've got to go sit next to a guy. No, Oz decided he was going to go sit down there. And he sat down there by his own volition. And he picked up the story with this guy. And so the guy phones me up to tell me, you won't believe what happened to me because I'm not a religious man. (laughs) And I said to him, I said, hey, Bob, you may not be looking for God, but God is looking for you. And there is no coincidence that he sat down beside you, somebody that would be able to explain to you the nature of who God is and what he's done in Jesus. Well, that's enough. It's probably more than enough. I think a brief word of prayer. Father, out of a multitude of words, um, bring home to our hearts perhaps something that is a blessing or an encouragement or a correction, whatever it might be. We, we want, when we look to the Bible, to meet Jesus, uh, the one who finally emerges out of this amazing story, the one who has suffered on our behalf, and the one who's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, the one to whom we can go and ask him to help us, to save us, to keep us. And to this we commit ourselves as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Alistair Begg from Truth For Life, and you're welcome to pass this sermon along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Truth For Life. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Truth For Life. For additional information about how you can support Truth For Life, please visit us online at truthforlife.org. There you'll find free message downloads from Alistair Begg, as well as links to our podcast, mobile apps, and other resources to help you grow in your Christian faith. Again, the website is truthforlife.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in touch with Truth For Life and Alistair Begg. Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.